I love that as physicians, as nurses, as healthcare providers, we really do strive to be evidence-based, or at least we should. I mean, we should always be on the cutting edge of technology and new medical research so we can take the best care of our patients. But nonetheless, despite all the drive of being evidence-based, there are a lot of things that we still do, especially in obstetrics, that are based in tradition rather than evidence-based facts. For example, patients are still told to count the number of fetal movements per hour, even though we know now that fetal kick counts are different for every patient. And it's better to just have fetal awareness of movement than a certain amount of movement per hour. That was the AFFIRM trial. And despite the lack of data showing the benefit from maternal O2 use for fetal D cells, except in the case of hypoxia, you can go into any labor and delivery unit, and anytime there's D cells, there's a mother with 100% non rebreather getting oxygen right in her face, even though she's not hypoxic. And then, of course, there's the issue of the non reactive NST. Yep, how many of you have been in labor and delivery and seen a non-reactive NST and then somebody quickly goes to get the OJ, OJ to the rescue, to try to increase the maternal glucose load to somehow magically change the non-stress test into a more reactive pattern? Is that evidence-based or is that just tradition? Well, in this episode, we're going to get down to the facts and we're going to lay down this timeline of data that has actually looked at this very question. So for the non-reactive, non-stress test, should we be giving maternal glucose as a glucose load to try to remedy a non-reactive NST? We're going to get to the bottom of it in this episode and we're also going to throw in an additional little freebie of a clinical pearl. And that has to do with the related topic of increasing the maternal glucose load for decreased fetal movement. I mean, since we're tackling glucose load for the NST, why not tackle fetal movement? I mean, does a high glucose load increase fetal movement? Well, we're going to answer that at the end of this episode as well. Okay, are you ready? Let's take a look at whether glucose administration or any kind of sugary drink increases the reactivity of the NST and fetal movement. Here we go. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. ACOG's Practice Bulletin 229 covers antepartum fetal surveillance. The NST is based on the premise that the heart rate of a fetus that is not acidotic or neurologically depressed will temporarily accelerate with fetal movement. Heart rate reactivity is thought to be a good indicator of normal fetal autonomic function. Loss of reactivity is most commonly associated with a fetal sleep cycle, but may also result from any causes of central nervous system depression, including fetal acidemia. The normal fetal heart rate is actually an interplay of the autonomic nervous system, cerebral centers, and cardiovascular reflexes. The autonomic intervention of the fetal heart is the most important mechanism in controlling the fetal heart rate variation. The parasympathetic muscarinic activity, which produces a decrease in fetal heart rate but with increased variation, is of primary importance in influencing the variation because of its very rapid effect on the fetal heart rate. 
In contrast, the sympathetic cardiac stimulation, producing an increase in fetal heart rate and decreased variation, leads to a much slower fetal heart rate response. The causes of an unreactive fetal heart rate can be broadly divided into those that are physiologic and those that are pathologic, knowing that the interplay between what is reactive and non-reactive is that very tightly knit battle between the sympathetic and parasympathetic influences on the heart from the central nervous system. Let's cover some of the physiological reasons for a non-reactive NST first. Of course, that's gestational age. Gestational age is the most important physiological influence on the fetal heart rate reactivity. The fetal heart rate fails to manifest A-cells in association with movements and is normally non-reactive before 24 weeks. In other words, it's simply a reflection of the immature central nervous system, so there really isn't that battle between sympathetic and parasympathetic that's normally found in the third trimester. So the fetal heart rate is physiologically non-reactive as a normal response to prematurity. Another physiological reason for a non-reactive NST is a fetal sleep cycle. Even though we all learn that it's 20 minutes at a time, remember, of course, that it can extend up to 40 minutes. So sometimes we just have to be patient and see if that fetal sleep cycle self-corrects. It has been recorded that at times that could even go for as long as an hour. But typically, in order to interpret an NST, it's 20 minutes as a goal, extended another interval of 20 minutes or a total of 40 but knowing that some data does note some reactivity return as late as one hour after first being put on the monitor. A third reason for a physiological, non-reactive, non-stress test simply responds to medication. So remember to ask what medications the mother is on because some of those may actually decrease the fetal heart rate variability. And it's not just the variability that's vulnerable here. Some medications can actually decrease the amplitude of the A-cell. So always make sure to know what medication the patient is on before we rush to judgment that the child potentially is acidotic. So these are the causes, the potential causes, of the physiological non-reactive non-stress test. Now let's get into the pathological possible causes. A number of different pathologies can produce an unreactive fetal heart rate by directly affecting the fetal central nervous system or the cardiovascular system. Examples of pathologies directly affecting the CNS are structural abnormalities like anencephaly, some infections, acute hypoxia, or even placental abruption, or a major non-fatal hypoxic or anoxic insult. So that's what gets everybody's attention, right? I mean, we don't want to be wrong and inadvertently attribute a pathological non-reactive NST as a physiological one. So that's why we get this dilemma and everybody runs quickly for some kind of solution rather than sometimes just letting it play out to see if it responds on its own, see if it becomes reactive on its own accord, which happens in the majority of the time. As explained in the ACOG Practice Bulletin on Antepartum Fetal Surveillance, a non-reactive NST is one that lacks sufficient fetal heart rate A-cells over a 20 to 40 minute period. The NST of the normal preterm fetus is frequently non-reactive, from 24 weeks to 28 weeks of gestation, up to 50% of NSTs may not be reactive, and from 28 weeks to 32 weeks, 15% of NSTs are not reactive. That's why the ACOG states that antepartum fetal surveillance 
typically should begin at 32 weeks when the immature axis has now matured. And that's why we have to give more grace when interpreting the NST or any antepartum fetal surveillance tool between that 28 to 32 week gestational window. In most cases, a reactive non-stress test is very reassuring because it has a low false negative rate. The stillbirth rate, corrected for any lethal congenital anomalies that the child may have, is about 1.9 per thousand NSTs that are reactive. That's pretty good. But it's still not as good as either a full or a modified biophysical profile because both of those have a stillbirth rate of 0.8 Per thousand. So the modified and the full biophysical profile have the same rate of stillbirth per 1,000 at 0.8. And remember that a reactive NST has a rate of stillbirth of 1.9 per thousand. So that brings us to our current dilemma. When facing a non-reactive NST, assuming, of course, that there's no other comorbid condition and the child is not um, severely FGR, she's not bleeding with a chronic previa, she doesn't have severe preeclampsia, there's nothing else going on. Just as an isolated finding of a non-reactive NST, is there evidence that giving the mother a glucose challenge or some kind of glucose load, that that can actually reverse the non-reactive and convert it into a reactive NST? Is there data for that? Well, this has actually been looked at for over 40 years. So we're going to walk down this timeline now, starting with the 80s and coming up more uh, to present day, that's actually answered this question. And it's interesting because even in the 70s and the 80s and even up to the 90s, this was still part of some nursing textbooks and even part of some obstetrical manuscripts. But there's data that really should answer this question once and for all. And we're going to get to it right now. Jeffrey Phelan is a pillar of OB research, and he's been around for a long time. He published in the Green Journal back in 1982 a publication titled Non-Stress Test and Maternal Serum Glucose Determinations. Pretty fitting, right? That's exactly what we're talking about. Before I get into this publication, let me just clarify something right now. I was not practicing medicine in 1982. How old do you think I am? All right. I'm very happy to say that I was still in like junior high. So don't be judging me when I quote a 1982 paper. And you know, I'm not going to leave us with 1982. I'm walking down the timeline, right? We're walking from history closer to present day. So just go with it. These researchers looked at serum glucose levels in 50 non-diabetic pregnant women between 33 and 43 weeks of gestation. Yeah, I said 43 weeks. How they weren't induced? I don't know. Remember, it was the 80s. Different time. <laughs> and they looked at these they looked at these serum glucose levels at the same time that they did a, a non-stress test and they wanted to determine this relationship right what is the mom's sugar level and then what's the result of the NST cuz it makes sense hey you do a little finger stick ooh she's got uh, normal or higher glucose levels that NST is going to be more reactive and those that had lower sugars it was thought would be less reactive i mean that sounds logical right that's the idea but is that what they found? Yeah, they weren't expecting the results that they got because the results were a little odd. Non-reactive NST groups did demonstrate slightly higher glucose levels than did the reactive group. Did y'all get that? 
<laughs> is that weird or what? So those that were called non-reactive by the same protocol that we have to, to read an NST, and then they looked at the finger sticks, those that were non-reactive had a higher chance of having higher maternal glucose levels. What? So they concluded these results suggest that there is no correlation between the NST results and maternal serum glucose concentrations in a non-diabetic population. Now, come on, let's be honest. You didn't think that was going to happen, right? I mean, I didn't expect that. Uh, kind of weird. So now let's fast forward just three years down our little timeline to 1985 in the American Journal of Perinatology. This study was undertaken to evaluate the effects of maternal IV administration of glucose on fetal breathing and its association with fetal heart rate patterns, all right? So now it's a little bit more in depth. Now we're going to give IV sugar and take a look through an ultrasound to see if it increases fetal breathing and if that affects the fetal heart rate. 16 healthy women at term participated in this study. Oh, I know it's just 16, but what are you going to do? I mean, at least it gave us some info. But yeah, it's 16, not 60, 16, 1, 6. The outcome of each of the pregnancies was normal. So we didn't give anybody diabetes, nothing else happened. So there was no adverse outcomes from this intervention. Fetal breathing and NSTs were recorded simultaneously at the same time. They found that maternal glucose administration did have a slight effect on increasing fetal breathing events, but it had a negligible effect on the fetal heart rate pattern. So what did these authors conclude? They concluded that, quote, this study confirms previous reports that the amount of time the fetus spends making breathing movements is slightly increased following maternal glucose administration, but it demonstrates that the injection of glucose does not alter the modulation of fetal heart rate nor beat-to-beat -beat variability by fetal breathing, end quote. So what does that mean? Yep, giving mom a little bit of sugar can definitely make the baby have a little bit of, of more diaphragmatic excursions, a little bit more diaphragmatic movement, but it didn't change the reactivity nor the variability of the NST. Now let's jump a decade to 1995 in the Journal of Obstetrical, Gynecological, and Neonatal Nursing. The title of this publication is, Is There Scientific Support for the Use of Juice to Facilitate the Non-Stress Test? Now, let's just stop here for a minute. Now, isn't this interesting? Look, we're still giving people juice in labor and delivery in 2022 and 2023, but this was the question that was addressed back in 1995. I don't, I don't know. I don't get it. I mean, for all the push that we do to be evidence-based, sometimes it's hard to break tradition. Plus, it also, I really, what I really think is happening is it gives us something to do. Hey, it's non-reactive. Let's run to get some juice. Hopefully, by the time we get back, we don't have to keep staring at it and it'll be reactive. Maybe that's the thing. But isn't that interesting that back in 1995, they were asking this very same question. These authors reviewed the literature looking at juice or glucose loading to facilitate or to improve a non-stress test. Seven studies were found that investigated the relationship between the maternal administration of natural or artificial glucose and the NST results. The authors concluded, quote, no support was found for the use of juice or glucose to facilitate, in other words, to improve, the NST as commonly administered in practice or as noted in current textbooks. The authors go on to say, quote, Therefore, the practice and textbook references to this practice should be questioned. The use of rituals undermines the professionalism of nursing practice. End quote. Ugh. They kind of took it to another level. I mean, I wouldn't have said all that. I would have just would have said that it doesn't seem to support it. But they called it ritualistic and unprofessional. 
Ugh, let's just leave it there and let's go now to 2010. In 2010, out of the University of Tehran, researchers looked at the effect of maternal intake of glucose on fetal movements accompanied by fetal heart rate accelerations. So unlike the previous report that looked at fetal breathing, these researchers took a look at fetal movements as well as fetal heart rate A cells in response to that movement. This was a prospective study performed on 35 non-laboring healthy women with normal singleton pregnancies between 37 and 40 weeks. The women were evaluated in a fasting state, meaning that their last meal was three hours or more from the NST. The NST and fetal body movements perceived by the mother were performed one hour following oral ingestion of 50 grams of glucose in 240 mLs of water or an equivalent amount of water during two successive days. Statistical analysis was performed and they found that there was no significant difference in the incidence of gross body movements perceived by the mother after the glucose challenge or water. Now, remember, at the end of the episode, I want to dive a little bit further into the effect of this glucose challenge or any kind of PO intake on fetal movement, but I don't want to linger on this one right now. I'm just mentioning it because it's part of this study, but I'll tackle that at the end of the podcast. But more importantly, as it relates to fetal heart rate accelerations, the authors concluded that it did not cause any change in the fetal heart rate patterns, that's variability or accelerations. So there was no effect of maternal glucose intake on perceived fetal movement, nor on fetal heart rate reactivity or accelerations. All right, podcast family, this brings us to 2013 in the Journal of Maternal, Fetal, and Neonatal Medicine, with the lead author being Sirtak Esim et al. The title of this publication from 2013 is Chocolate or Orange Juice for Non-Reactive NST Patterns, a Randomized Prospective Control Study. Well, now it's getting interesting because at least now we have an RCT. The objective of this study was to compare bitter chocolate and orange juice with a control group for non-reactive NST patterns and for maternal perception of fetal movements. So similar to the last publication that we just checked, these authors are checking for effect on fetal heart rate patterns and fetal movement after either bitter chocolate or orange juice is exactly what we're talking about in this episode. And thankfully now, this is not a you know, little prospective study. This is an RCT. Pregnant women who were followed up on an outpatient basis and who were admitted for an NST and had a non-reactive result were randomized prospectively into either the bitter chocolate group, orange juice group, or a control group. 180 patients were evaluable for the final analysis. What were the results? Well, although there was a trend for OJ groups having higher percentages of reactive NST, that was just a trend. It never reached statistical significance. The p-value was 0.15, far from the 0.05 for statistical significance. Besides this, maternal perception of increased fetal movement was actually similar between all groups. Remember, that was bitter chocolate, OJ, or placebo. The authors concluded that although orange juice did result in higher maternal blood glucose levels, this was not synonymous with better NST results. In fact, it was the same whether they had bitter chocolate, orange juice, or in the control group, and there was also no change in maternal perception of fetal movements. 
All right, podcast family, we've walked down this timeline from the 1980s to 2013, which brings us now to ACOG's practice bulletin on antepartum fetal surveillance, which covers a non-stress test. Remember that this was practice bulletin 229 from June 2021. So now we're at current present day. It has to be stated that nowhere in that practice bulletin does ACOG recognize or endorse or even suggest a PO challenge or otherwise a glucose load for the mother as a potential intervention for a non-reactive NST. But what is recommended for a non-reactive NST? Well, outside of just waiting for it to kind of become reactive by itself, remember extending the time of intervention from 20 minutes to 40 minutes, and even though it's a little outlier up to the hour after being put on the monitor, although that's you know a little bit more on the fringe, it's 20 minutes up to 40 minutes, ACOG does recognize vibroacoustic stim. Vibroacoustic stimulation can elicit FHRA cells that are valid in the prediction of fetal well-being. Such stimulation offers this advantage of safely reducing the frequency of non-reactive NSTs by up to 40%, and it also decreases the time of testing by almost 7 minutes. Now notice once again that there's no mention of increasing glucose levels in the mother. Another option to vibroacoustic stim is a mild abdominal rock maneuver. So kind of put your hand on the fetal uh, cranium, another one on the buttocks, and almost in a Leopold fashion, a quick abdominal rock uh, is also enough to kind of wake up the child from a fetal sleep cycle, and that may also elicit a, a inappropriate A-cell response. And of course, as we've already mentioned, the other thing to do is just wait to see if the fetal sleep cycle goes away by itself. And then the third option, in addition to vibroacoustic stim or abdominal rocking maneuver, is to proceed in the investigation. We get so hooked up and, and so tripped on a non-reactive NST that we forget that the NST is just one tool for antepartum fetal surveillance, and it's one part of a complete biophysical profile. Assuming the remainder of the biophysical profile is normal, giving a score of 8 out of 10, minus 2 for the NST, that's also reassuring. But because fetal acute hypoxia may first manifest as a non-reactive NST, don't let those patients go on for an entire week. Those require short-term follow-up, either with a repeat assessment in 24, 36, or at maximum 48 hours, to make sure there's no progression or deterioration in other markers of the biophysical profile. So rather than going for the orange juice, perhaps either give more time, attempt vibroacoustic stim, an abdominal rock, or perform a complete biophysical profile with a reassuring score buying more time to wait, with short-term follow-up being anywhere from 24, 36, to 48 hours thereafter. All right, podcast family, we're at the end of the episode. And as I promised, I do want to cover this whole topic that's related to the effect of maternal glucose intake and fetal heart rate response or fetal heart rate patterns. And that's the effect on perceived fetal movement by the mother. All right. So it happens the same kind of discussion here. Oh, I'm not feeling the baby move. Oh, well, have you eaten? No. Oh, well, here's some juice and see if the baby moves. Is that a thing? Well, first of all, remember that the baby's going to take care of its own, <laughs> all right? So nature finds a way. So human placental lactogen, cortisol levels, all the other physiologic adaptations of pregnancy does ensure a constant energy substrate that goes downstream from the mother to the child. 
That's why even in times of severe famine, I mean, the baby can actually still have growth. They have slower growth, but they still grow at the expense of maternal fat stores and protein stores uh, and energy stores. So there is this beautiful uh, mother-child dyad slash parasitic relationship because the child really will... And, you know, no pun intended, but kind of cannibalize the mother, so to speak, as it draws substrates from the maternal compartment into the fetal compartment. So is this issue, knowing that there's a continued substrate flow into the child, is this issue of decreased fetal movement, is it really linked to low maternal PO intake? In other words, mom hasn't eaten and will giving her sugar increase fetal movement perception? And we've kind of answered that a little bit in some of the data that we've already covered. But let me just go through this quick data here quickly. I did want to cover this because some of the data that's been done on this is mind-blowing, okay? Because it is totally counterintuitive. Because what I'm going to tell you uh, is going to mess with you a little bit, all right? Now, so let's let's put on the obvious first. Yes, there is some data that says, oh... Uh, you give the mother something to drink, a sugary drink, the baby moves more. Of course, we don't know if the baby was going to move more by itself or not, all right? So some data has shown, yes, it increased the fetal movement. Other data has shown, no, it has not. Uh, so we have this kind of conflict, right? But here's an interesting point. This was actually published in the American Journal of Perinatology. The lead author was Holden, all right? And they did something very interesting here because they wanted to test this hypothesis because they thought, like everybody else, you give the mother a sugary drink, it's going to significantly increase fetal activity. But that's not what they found. They actually found just the opposite. They found that once the mother had a high glucose intake, it actually resulted in decreased fetal movement. Yep. Findings from this and other studies have suggested an inverse relationship between maternal glucose and fetal activity. Now, follow me here. I'm not nuts, all right? This makes sense. The idea that if maternal stores do run low, the baby actually increases fetal movement as a way to wake up the mother to go eat. Is that wild or what? However, in the reverse fashion, in the postprandial state, should the child receive a high glucose load or large energy you know, bolus of, of, of material, then the baby is basically satiated and stops moving. So it's totally reverse thinking. It's, it's not what you think. Actually, periods of fasting have been linked to more fetal movement, if you actually take a look at the data, compared to fetal movement in the postprandial state. Now, here's what's interesting. We'll take a look at veterinary medicine. No, I'm not nuts. Just follow me here for a minute. In animal studies, the exact same thing is found when they study pregnant mammals. All right. So in, in these cases, when animals forge and eat, then they become satiated, of course, and they stop moving. They have time to digest. And the same happens to the, their babies. But when there are in prolonged times of fasting, they've actually found in animal models that those fetuses do actually increase in movement. And of course, the animals get up and move because now they're stimulated to go eat because not only they're hungry, but their baby is super active. Is that wild or what? So does that make sense? So it's counterintuitive that maternal intake would give more fetal movement, but actually the data shows that increased PO intake actually results in decreased fetal movement. Now, whether you believe that or not, I'm just saying what the data shows. I believe it. I, it makes sense to me. And there's plenty of publications that have shown that. The short answer is no. 
having glucose intake or having the mother eat something does not predictably increase fetal movement. All right, podcast family, I hope that information is helpful to you. Remember, it's hard to break tradition. It's hard to stop putting O2 on that mother for a fetal D-cell when she's not hypoxic, even though there is evidence that that potentially could be harmful, especially in the early preterm infant because of free radical formation. Well, we just want to be doing something that really is rooted in the evidence. So for a non-reactive NST, giving the mother some kind of glucose challenge uh, may be good for her if she's hungry, but doesn't seem to increase fetal heart rate, A cells, or variability. Nor does it seem to have a predictable effect on fetal movement. All right, if I just busted somebody's bubble, sorry, but that's the way it is. <laughs> As always, we're thankful for you, and we're glad that you're part of our podcast community. We'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.